Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It is Tuesday, September 6th, 2011. 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and it's a thrill to be back with you on the buzz and back with a fun one tonight. A little bit later in this episode, I'm bringing you a chat that I actually recorded last fall with celebrity chef and television personality Curtis Stone. But first up tonight, a chat I conducted last week with a frighteningly talented young man of whose work I happen to be an enormous fan. He's a singer-songwriter by the name of John McLaughlin, and if you don't know his name, you're about to find out why you should. He broke through in 2007 with his arresting major label debut record, Indiana, and followed that up with two big moves, a cameo in the Disney film Enchanted, in which he performed the same song that he would later sing to roughly a billion pairs of eyeballs around the globe on the following year's Academy Awards telecast, and a pop-leaning masterstroke, 2008's Magnificent OK Now. McLaughlin's terrific third album, Forever If Ever, is just out in stores today, and John stopped by the buzz to discuss the record and to talk about his new life as a refugee of the music industry's major label system. So uh, let's get the 60-second bio on John McLaughlin here. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Let's get that stuff out of the way. So I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, but I actually grew up just up the road in Anderson, Indiana, and uh, I actually I, I grew up went to elementary, junior high, high school, college, all in good old Anderson, Indiana. Wow. So I played music, you know, all my life, and started playing piano when I was like four or five, and you know did the piano lesson thing forever and ever and ever, and then <laughs> and it shows too. Oh well, thank you. Well. <laughs> It's funny because I didn't really make a ton of progress until I got to college. But, wow. um, you know, I dabbled in it in high school, but I wasn't really into it. You know, I wanted to play sports and stuff like that. So I I was in some freak rollerblading accident my freshman year of high school, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because my parents would never let me quit <laughs> piano for years, literally years. I would come in with, like, charts and graphs telling them how much money they're wasting paying for piano lessons for me. And they would still they would talk me into staying every time they would talk me in. And by the it was like I didn't even feel like they were forcing me because by the end my parents are like conversational geniuses. 
at the end, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I will give this one more shot this week. Wow. And then you go to bed, and you're like, what just, just happened? So <laughs> I, I was in this accident. I broke both my arms at the same time, and they were like, all right, obviously you can't physically play right now, so just take a break. So pretty much all through high school, I didn't play piano. Wow. You know, my parents, I think they were worried that I was never going to come back to music, so they bought me, the day I got my cast off, they bought me a guitar, and I tried that for a little bit, but I just, I, guitar is so hard, I don't know how people play it. Sure. And um, Of course, people say that about piano, too, so. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I have a ton of respect for guitar players, even bad ones, I respect them. <laughs> And so, but, but it, you know, it's so funny you say that because if you look at somebody like John Mayer, he makes it seem just effortless what he does with that instrument. Right. No, definitely, yeah. And you know, and I play, I do play a little bit of guitar now, and but I really just started playing out of necessity because you know, you, when you're on the road, you gotta, I need to write songs, and you can't sure. drag a piano, you know, <laughs> up on the bus. So, so anyway, a, a Casio keyboard's just not the same thing. So it's not the same. So. <laughs> I got back into music right at the end of high school. Uh, I mean, I had these crazy plans. I was going to be a doctor, largely due to the show ER and George wow. Clooney. So I was, you know, I was going to be a doctor. I was Actually, I was going to go to Texas A&M. This was my plan. I was a swimmer all my life. I was going to swim at Texas A&M and study pre-med. That was my plan, which sounds so ridiculous. But that was what I was thinking I was going to do. And then, long story short, my family actually switched churches. We used to go to this, like, tiny little Methodist church that I loved, and then we switched and went to this bigger church. And and I didn't want to switch to this other church because I loved our little church, but they had, like, a youth group when I was in high school, and they had a youth band, and they needed a keyboard player. Wow. And so I – and it was different than I – you know, I, up until that point, I had really studied, like, classical music. Sure. Reading notes on a page. Because what else are you going to do with the piano? I mean, Right, exactly. But this was like nobody was reading music. Nobody knew how to read music. You just followed along, you know. And yeah. I, that was mind-blowing to me. It really opened up the whole other side of music that I had never really been um, exposed to. So from that point on, I, it was, I was all about music. So. You know, it's, it's so funny, you're talking about piano. I'm a big fan of a, of a singer-songwriter called Tori Amos, and she you oh, know, yeah. grew up playing the piano. I mean, she was, you know, in Juilliard when she was just barely out of diapers, and, and it's so funny. You can hear it, it bits and pieces of, of that classical influence in her music now, and I think you can hear bits and pieces of that in your music, too, especially when you're on the piano. And I, I was listening to your new album this morning, and there's a great... Uh, piano solo bridge in, in a song called Promising Promises, which you can totally hear, you know, some of the some of the flowery classical piano in that bridge. It, it's really amazing. Well, some of my heroes, when I talk about Billy Joel and Elton John, well, you know, like Frederick Chopin and Hans Liszt and some of these guys that are like Rachmaninoff that are just unbelievable Absolutely. pianists. And the, I mean, the types of things that Chopin wrote and that I studied a lot in college. And, it, you know, it's funny, as a side note, once I was opened up into the other half of music that was sort of the antithesis of classical music, ironically, I wanted to study classical as well at the same time. When I started writing, I was, I was also studying classical in college. So those guys, yeah, I have, I have just such a 
awe about not only what they could play physically, but that they wrote this, you know. Sure. I try to put a little bit of that. (laughs) You know, being from Indiana, I'm going to assume that someone like John Mellencamp provided a bit of a role model for you in terms of, you know, someone who managed to achieve great success for himself without sacrificing his integrity as an artist and without forgetting where he came from. Is that is that a fair assumption? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, everybody everybody around these parts worships John Cougar. Sure. And I love, you know, his attitude, especially around here. It's, like, legendary. When you picture John Mellencamp, you know, you picture him, you know, leaning up. He's very James Deanish, you know, with <laughs> a cigarette in his hand. You, you know, bet. Just like, you bet. That's kind of not my personality. I'm I'm much more of a <laughs> team player. You know, and on this record, this new record, Forever If Ever, this was my one time that I think I took on a little bit of Mellencamp's I'm doing Wagner. what I want. Yeah, which is probably what I should have been doing, you know, all, all along. But I think I got it right this time. You know, we're talking about this new album, Forever If Ever, and and from reading up on you and kind of preparing for this conversation, you know, I haven't seen you come right out and say this, but it seems as though you were a bit tossed around and a bit unfulfilled by your major label experience. And, you know, I've been listening to Forever this morning, as I told you, and I get the sense that you really wanted to come out swinging with this record and and try and give people the the clearest sense yet of who you are as an artist. And I, I think you've really succeeded here. I mean, the songs are are, to my ear, deeply personal and, and feel so, and yet this isn't one of those open-a-vein records. I mean, it's rather compulsively listenable and, and even quite fun throughout. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, there were a lot of boxes that I needed to check off on this record, you know, that both for me personally and also what I wanted the listener to, to get. With my experience with Island Def Jam, which, I, I mean, I have to say, I made a lot of great friends there, and there are a lot of people that still work there that I'm still in contact with and are great people, but it's always true, I think, that no, you know, nobody really knows what is best for an artist more than that artist, and sometimes it takes you a little while to really know what you want to do as an artist, but, you know, you sign up with a major label, and you're both kind of committed to each other. They sign to you because they believe in you. But at the same time, you know, you got to play ball a little bit. I think that they kind of saw me in a certain light, and I definitely wasn't comfortable a lot of the time in the way that, you know, they wanted me to be perceived and the way I wanted to carry myself. So on this record, we spent a year and a half or more with the label trying to make this record, and it didn't work out, and it ended in us parting ways. And myself, you know, just out here independent, I kind of felt like for the first time I really had a lot to to prove. Really before, my tendency was to write, you know, if I had 12 songs on a record, I wrote 15 songs for the whole thing, and maybe there were a couple that didn't make it, but for this one, there are 12 songs on the record, and I probably wrote 50 or 60 songs for the record. So there there was just a lot going on. It was a, a lot of every day with a grind, which is maybe tough on your hairline, but it's great for songwriting. <laughs> you know, I, I can't even imagine what it, what it must be like to be an artist and and to you know try to compete for you know uh, traction, radio, real estate, anything with someone like Katy Perry or Lady Gaga or you know the just the craziness that seems to rule the pop landscape right now. It, it must just it yeah. must just be impossible to try to 
to try to even uh, visualize competing with something like that. I think that some kid that's five years old today that that is um, really talented musically that's growing up and you, and you can just tell he's destined to, to to be a musician. He's going to have to compete. He or she is going to have to compete in whatever culture, you know, in 10, 15 years when they're in their 20, you know? Sure. And who knows what radio is going to be at that time. I, and I always wonder, you know, like, since a lot of my heroes are, like I said, Elton John and Billy Joel, you wonder, would they be iconic now if, they, if Elton John were 19 years old? Absolutely. Out, tiny, tiny dancer right now. Trying to break through. You know, trying to break through, yeah. And... Obviously, Tiny Dancer is an amazing song, and it it got its credit in its time. But if sure. it were some other different time that it were written, it's still a great song. It just maybe doesn't match up with pop culture. You know, and having that, said that, what I do love about your material is that you do know how to strike that difficult balance. I mean, you have you have songs like, you know, Dance Your Life Away, they're just straight up pop gems, and then you sneak around and and throw out a cold cock like Indiana, which you know seems to just ooze right out of your soul. I mean, it's you make that transition seem yeah. kind of effortless when you do it. Well, I, a lot of people have a lot of likes when it comes to music. I mean, you, there's nothing more universal than music. Music and love, those are the two things that, <laughs> that everybody knows, you know. Sure. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s listening to pop music. I also had Harry Connick Jr. and Art Tatum and stuff like that, some kind of like left the center stuff a little bit. But for the most part, I was just a regular kid listening to Belfiz DeVoe, <laughs> I have like those, you know, just there's a part of my soul that just loves a good pop song. Absolutely. Know? Who doesn't? And at the same time, I love Billy Joel's She's Got Away or something sure. like that. Or, and so it goes. So I feel like for my my soul to be balanced, I gotta kind of, I've, I've got to put both of those things out. So... You know, I mentioned Indiana. That's probably my personal favorite song of yours, and I'd love to hear whatever you're comfortable sharing about the creation of that song. That song's interesting because obviously it's written kind of as a uh, as a relationship song, and you know, part of that is I think a lot of songwriters, or at least I do, I, I like to cloak things in a relationship, like I said, because it is so universal. Mm-hmm. But that song is actually. I wrote it for the first record, Indiana, obviously. So this was five years ago. I had just signed with Island, and I was just, like, fresh out of college, didn't know a thing. And I really hadn't been writing songs for that long. I'd been writing songs for maybe four years at that time. And I went out to L.A. for the first time ever. I'd never been there before because the label wanted me to do some co-writing with some, some songwriters out there. So I was out there... I think it was like three weeks. It was a long time, and I was just writing every day with different writers, and I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. And I called my A&R guy after, you know, maybe a week of doing this, and I told him, this is just not working. These people are very talented. They do what they do really well, I'm sure. But I was having a hard time putting any substance into any song that I would write. I would leave at the end of the day, hop that CD in my rental car and listen to the, whatever song we wrote that day. But, you know, you're cranking these things out by the hour. So you sure. Can, odds are you're not going to put a lot of meaning into what you're saying musically and lyrically into these songs. 
so I asked if I could stop, you know, I asked if I could come home. And, and again, it goes back to, you know, like John Cougar Mellicamp, he wouldn't have called his A&R guy. He just wouldn't have shown up the next day. He, he would have been on a flight back to Seymour, Indiana, like a rock star, you know. But I call and, of course, ask permission. I'm like, uh, do you think it'd be okay if I, I – I am quite miserable, so maybe I could stop. And he's like, no, 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 come on, just yeah. give it a shot. Two more weeks out of your life, come on. So that night, after I got off the phone with him, I went over to my one friend's house in L.A. He was a guy who I lived with in college. He happened to move out to L.A. So I went over to his house, and we were going to have dinner. I was, uh, he had a guitar, and I sat out on his porch with his guitar and started writing the song, Indiana. And Indiana is about that time. It's about L.A. is kind of the city by the water and the mountains. And I was kind of back and forth between L.A. and New York a lot. And New York is the city in the song. And it's kind of a song about the music business and how I, you know, I wanted to be in that exact spot that I was in for years and, and kind of for my whole life. I mean, I've always wanted to be Billy Joel. And I was eight days into it, and I hated it. And the song is just kind of about wanting to go back to Indiana and just pretend like the music business thing never really gave me a shot. So. One of those be careful what you wish for moments. Exactly, yeah. You know, I, I took a look at your at your tour schedule this fall, and you you take a little break in November for a few weeks, but other than that, it looks like, you, you know, you've charted a pretty grueling course for yourself, crisscrossing the country and, and playing somewhere just about every night. Are, are you a road dog? Do you love getting out there and, and being with the fans? I love playing live. And I get this question a lot. Which would you prefer if you could only write songs, but you could never perform them, or you could perform, but you have to perform other people's songs? And I think either way, I would I would be incomplete. But there's something about playing a live show that is just the greatest. It's my favorite thing in the whole world, you know, to be on stage, to play, especially with this new record, to play these new songs. I've never been more excited about a group of songs than I have been with this record. So to go out, we're, you know, we're starting the tour September 27th, and we go through December. So that whole time, every night pretty much, I'm going to be the happiest guy in the world. Just wow. up on stage, I'm like, you know, just playing these songs. So do you have a favorite song on the record? Is there something that you're, you know, particularly antsy for the fans to hear or a song that you're kind of itching to get out there and play? It's tough to pick one. You know, it, it'll change. The, the songs that I tend to gravitate toward while I'm listening are one thing, but then once we get on the road and start playing, the songs will morph and change from night to night, and my drummer will play some slightly different beat, and then I'll, it'll be like, oh, now this is my favorite song in the world. <laughs> but there's a song on the new record called If Only I that probably if, if I had to pick one that I was most proud of, both as a songwriter and as a producer, I think it would be that one. I would probably pick that one. But it's tough to pick. They're all they're all my babies. <laughs> of course. You know, uh, before I wrap this up here, <clears throat> I have to ask you about your Oscar experience. I mean, they say upwards of a billion people around the world watch the Academy Awards the night they air. And, uh, you know, I can only imagine that that was just a, a total mind trip for you to know that a billion people simultaneously had their eyes trained on you. Yeah. Yeah, you have... There's no place to put that in your mind. I remember that week we were in L.A. doing rehearsals, the whole week before, 
and so that you know I would do some interviews in between, and people would of course talk about the statistics of how many people watch the Academy Awards, and there's just no way to even think about that in your mind. You know, I mean, when you as a performer when you get up on stage, there reaches a point where you know if, if you're playing to 500 people, that's one thing, but once you get up into the thousands or so, no question. 1,200 or 10,000, it's just a sea of people, you know. But with TV, it's so different because you can't see them. You can't, you know. So I was already kind of out of my element a little bit. And then, you know, people start throwing words around like billion. And uh, it freaks you out quite a bit. I had enough to worry about with the people that were actually in that room. Absolutely. Johnny Depp sitting right there in the front row looking at me. As I'm singing, but yeah, it was one of the greatest experiences I've had so far in my life. It was definitely a huge, huge, huge honor to be a part of the Academy Awards. And as a musician, you're always you're thinking about the Grammys your whole life. So you don't even—I never even dreamed that I would have <laughs> had the you know the honor to go to the Academy Awards. So. Sure. So what are you listening to right now? Whose music reaches out and, and grabs you by the heart? Right now, I'm I am transfixed with the Black Keys, especially their brothers album. Sure. I just I I love I love what they do. I think it's awesome. They've got kind of a soulful thing going on and they do it in a really cool way. So I I really love that record. And what's on the horizon for John McLaughlin? I mean you're you're touring this fall with uh Stephen Kellogg and the Sixers, another fantastic American band that not nearly enough people know about. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel the same way about them. They um Stephen and I we did a tour together, like, gosh, four years ago now. And I was actually opening up first of three, and it was with a guy named Matt Wirtz. Okay. So it was Matt Wirtz, Stephen Kellogg, and the Sixers, and then I was, I was, um, I hadn't even come out with my first record on Island yet. So I was just playing, touring around just by myself, playing my piano. And I just love those guys. It's like great music, and we've been talking about doing a tour together for years. So they have a new record coming out, and now that my record's out, I'm really excited to start the tour here in just in a couple of weeks. So for the next couple of weeks, it'll be my band and I hold up in our practice room just jamming. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I tell you what, the record is called Forever If Ever. It's the third third major record from uh, this fantastic guy, John McLaughlin. If you want to find him on tour, he's touring all fall from September all the way through December, just about every night somewhere. Uh, and you can find out more information at his website, which is johnmcl.com. So you don't have to worry about how to spell McLaughlin correctly, just johnmcl.com. I can I spell it correctly half the time, but you know, <laughs> I can't expect people to spell that name correctly. <laughs> well, I, I very much appreciate you taking some time to speak with me. Like I said, I'm a big fan for a long time, and this was a, a really great thrill speaking with you this morning. Our pleasure's all mine. Thank you. Thank you very much. And many, many thanks one more time to the great John McLaughlin. The new record, again, is called Forever If Ever. Just out today. Go get it. It's great stuff. Back in two shakes with Chef Curtis Stone. Hang tight, everybody.
last fall I was given the opportunity to have a brief chat with celebrity chef and television personality Curtis Stone, whom you may know from his appearances on uh, The Biggest Loser, Top Chef, Celebrity Apprentice, etc., etc. And we had a great, fun conversation. Then I edited the file, tucked it away in a digital folder in the recesses of my computer's hard drive, not sure if I would air it or, or post it on my blog. And all of a sudden, a year has passed, and uh, I'm finally releasing it into the wild. So without further ado, a chat about food fun, and the art of life with a man who is very smart about such matters. You know, it, it seems like people in this country and in the world are, are more concerned than ever about eating healthy and, you know, getting it right in terms of nutrition, and yet the statistics on obesity have never been more staggering or more horrifying, and so there's obviously a, a massive disconnect in, somewhere in the middle there. What's up with us as a people? You know, what What I think is happening, to be honest, is we've become so busy and, and you know, so focused on working long hours and in a sense and I know we're going through an economic downturn or, or a really tough time but in a sense I think the problem is we've got too much money and you know we've become quite cash rich and time poor and we can afford more things than we could a couple of generations ago you know so what that means is our, our diets have suffered because we've looked to more processed food and we're, we're getting lunch on the run quite often and eating dinner from a takeout place in front of the television and we've lost that art of cooking and that skill of being able to provide for your family good healthy food that's in balance and and uh, and check so you know I, I think that's what's happened to our diets and uh, you know as a man from australia do you find that this is happening in, in your country as well or is it just is it a uniquely american thing that this is happening no, I think it's happening all over the Western world. So, you know, I grew up in Australia and then moved to uh, Europe and worked and, and lived in Europe for uh, seven or eight years, and then now I'm in, in the States. And it's a problem that I find wherever I go, um, and there's a, a, a big disposable income, you know, and that usually comes from two people working. And, you know, you think about it, two generations ago, we didn't have two cars per family. We didn't go on holidays every year in exotic places. We couldn't afford the, those types of food. We were much, um, you know, money was much tighter. So, Where, it, you know, Dad would get up really to work and then Mom change. would stay home and she would make breakfast and she would make lunch and she would make dinner and, you know, everybody would eat at a family and then the next day everything would start all over again. That's right. And I think, look, the, the um, obviously the weight and dietary problems that are caused by not having somebody cook dinner in, in, a, in a home is one side of it. But I think there's a big social change too where we, we're not sitting around a dinner table and when was the last time you heard somebody say, go on, set the table for dinner and, and uh, it feels like it's becoming a thing of the past, which I think is really sad because you know there's all that cooperation, appreciation and communication that happen around a dinner table within a family that kind of keep it grounded and keep you connected with each other and all the rest of it and you know there's the responsibility when you're preparing food for each other you know if you if you think about your family and think well I'm going to cook them something they're really going to like but you're not going to cook them something that's going to kill them either you know <laughs> you got to cook them something a bit more responsible you know this idea of of renovating your pantry and making a conscious effort to cook healthy and you know stock your fridge with healthy food components it's so massive and can be a bit overwhelming i think uh, for the families who get by on either McDonald's every night or things like fried chicken and, and microwave TV dinners, where where's the best place to start? I mean, give me two or three of the most vital foundational building blocks in terms of building a, a, uh, a healthy kitchen. To be honest with you, the best place to start is a good farmer's market or a good grocery store that's got it. So you need to have access to fresh fruit and vegetables and 
some different types of seafood and some different types of meat and there's a really simple rule that I try and follow and it's if you eat what comes out of the ground as opposed to what comes out of a packet <laughs> you're in a really good place you know that it, it, it's hard to overeat on oranges and apples but it's, it's when we're on the biggest loser ranch we always talk about this balance how many calories do you burn as opposed to how many you put in your mouth and if you take in less and you put out more then you will lose weight. If you take in more and put out less, then you'll put on weight. You know, it's, it's a pretty simple thing. And when it comes to your diet, if you're eating natural food in moderation, then you can pretty much play in every field. You can have a little bit of dairy. You can have some meat. You can have some fish. You can have plenty of fruits and vegetables. You can eat some grains. You can eat some rice and legumes. And, you know, there's... There's nothing that you can't tell. You can even have a piece of chocolate once in a while or, or a scoop of ice cream once in a while, but it's got to be in moderation. So tell me what impresses Curtis Stone in terms of a prepared meal. I mean, if, if someone decides she, he or she is going to cook you a meal, first of all, are, are you a tough customer when it comes to food or, or do you have a pretty easy palate? Mate, people cook for chefs so seldomly, I would be happy with anything put on the plate. You know, I say to my girlfriend jokingly that she's 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 never cooked never cooked for me, but it's not that much of a joke. You know, it's uh, <laughs> chefs are pretty happy when someone else invites them around. Let me tell you that. <laughs> and so, what is what is Curtis Stone's favorite meal? Tell me what tell me a plated dinner that turns you on every time. Oh, you know, in the UK they have a lot of big roasts, you know, roast lamb or a piece of roast pork, and, and sure. I've, I've got really fond memories of that. You know, my mum used to do those big roast dinners, and I, I really enjoyed them. So I guess it's probably, you know, the first thing that springs to mind is that. You know, these days I do eat healthy. You know, I, I love fish. I love, um, I grew up around the ocean, so I love a good piece of fish that you can cook out on the grill. I like food that's sourced really well and cooked really simply. So when you start off with beautiful quality ingredients, and that might just be a ripe tomato, for instance, and then you get your hands on a good quality ball of mozzarella and you tear the two of those up and you tear up some fresh basil and pour over a little bit of extra virgin olive oil and balsamic, and you got a beautiful dish and you didn't even cook a thing. You know, I, I have to mention your your appearance on Celebrity Apprentice, which you know turned you on to a whole new uh, demographic of people. I think uh, you were terrific on that show. What we saw on, on that show was spread out over, you know, a period of twelve or fourteen weeks on television. But tell me how grueling that that actual shoot of that show was. It was a tough one, you know. I, I think mentally and um, and physically. But when we when we first got up there, I can remember sitting in the room and. I looked around and there's Brett Michaels doing his thing and there's Cindy Lauper who was holding court talking about something and then Sharon Osborne walked in and everybody went silent and Sharon started and then I looked across and there's Bill Goldberg who looks like he could kill you with one blow and I thought to myself, what have I done? Why am I sitting in this room with all these crazy people? And um, once the show started we got our first challenge, I just had fun. It was like playing a big game, you know, and big stakes we were all playing for our charities and I've worked with Feed in America and managed to raise a whole bunch of money for them and, and a lot of awareness for the charity so I couldn't have been happier with it I just I, I really enjoyed the experience and what did you most take away from it in terms of I don't know in terms of how you approach your daily life what, did, what was the what was the biggest takeaway from that from that experience well thankfully I don't have to go into the boardroom at the end of every day and, and face <laughs> Donald um, so so I don't think I don't think I'd, I'd rush up to uh, to take a job with uh, Mr. Trump because it's a pretty frightening experience I got to tell you. But 
You know, look, I think that what you have to do in that situation is a little bit like what you have to do in a kitchen anyway. Is you're like, okay, we've got this coming up and we've got to get organised as quick as we possibly can. And I think what I really learnt from the experience was how important your planning was. If you just took that 10 minutes or half an hour or whatever it was to write out a bit of a roadmap as to what you were going to do over the next 24 hours or 48 hours depending on the challenge and with that roadmap it, it always ended up being invaluable and if you didn't do it then it was just a scramble. And I want to say thanks once again to Curtis Stone and to John McLaughlin and that's a wrap for Brandon's Buzz in the can for September 6th. If you're listening you already know how to find the show but in case you don't three places online blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz really is home base for this show. It's mission control. You can listen to the show from there. You can download previous episodes from the show from there. You can see what's on the show, what's been on the show, what's coming on the show, all from that place, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me on my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button, that takes you to a full radio archive of every episode of this show. They're all lined up. This is episode number 84, this, and all previous 83 episodes, all available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. You can also find me on iTunes. I'm on iTunes, guys, right next to John McLaughlin. Uh, just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section, click on my logo. From there, you can listen to individual old episodes as podcasts, uh, or you can, uh, I'm sorry, you can download individual episodes of the show as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can uh, subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the store. So uh, I'm, all, I'm on Twitter, I'm on iTunes, I'm on Facebook, I'm all over the place. Google the words Brandon's Buzz and something will pop up that points you in my direction, I promise. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show. And you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it hey out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it Better when you live on a street of dreams Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be Hi everybody, this is Nicholas Walker, merci à vous tous Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio Bonsoir et à très bientôt <laughs> 